Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. It's your biggest fangirl here with a question. Recently, a friend of mine was told that she should wait one year postpartum before trying to conceive again so that her uterus is safe. I am calling you from Seattle. My question is about baby aspirin in pregnancy. I was wondering if you know or have heard of anyone ever successfully preventing hyperemesis gravidarum in pregnancy. My question is, do midwives ever use fetal scalp electrode monitoring? And when do the risks outweigh the benefits? Ever since basically the start of my pregnancy, I have had some incredible nipple pain. Um, so much so that... That's a big old flag. That's like a negative point. If you get points for having a tub, that's a negative point. You have a tub and you use it for storage. That's just <laughs> definitely worse than not having a tub. Yes, it is. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. So, hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the July Q&A. Why don't you tell everyone the exciting new format we have this month? This is going to be really fun. You guys called in and left voicemail questions on our phone number, and we are going to do our Q&A this month with your recorded questions. It's so different hearing it their really voices, is. isn't it? It's so nice. Yes. Just I the way it. you guys, you know, the little subtleties in in tones and they the all sound like great questions. people we want to hang out with. It's really going to be fun this way. They, they yeah. sound like, they sound like our friends and you know what, just in all, in all truthfulness, Trisha, we were never that good at reading questions. <laughs> we never really nailed that skill. <laughs> really? I, thought we we had, were, right? I think we had a lot of outtakes where we were fumbling over questions oh, and things, well, don't you think? Or we true. had to restate them or. Of course. Anyway. Well, be, yeah. Because yeah, sometimes the way you read a, write a question and read a question, it just doesn't always line up. Yeah. It's harder so, to read conversational things, I think, than, uh, than like reading a book. Yeah. This so, will be interesting. This new format though, guys, we hopefully will, um, we'll be smooth with it, but it's our first time. So bear with us. No, it's going to go great. It's going to go great. I'm really excited to get started. So let's jump in with the first question. We have tons of questions. We just want to remind everyone if you would like much longer Q and A's, many more questions, uh, remember to subscribe on Apple and all of our episodes, including back in season one and two, every single episode, I believe, um, is entirely ad-free. So exclusive content, longer Q and A's every single month and no ads ever. So if that isn't enticing, I don't know what is. We got nothing else to offer, (laughs) but it's all out there. So we are very excited to see the subscribers we have and thank you so much. And we want to reward you certainly with really great content. And Trisha, that means we have a ton of questions uh, to record today. So uh, some of which for the, for the regular episode and some for the extent. So let's jump in. All right. Let's go. Here's our, here's our first question. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. My name is Kirsten, and I've been listening for a couple years now from down here in Central Texas. I love this podcast so much. I actually had a hard time thinking of a question because y'all have just taught me so much. But I did think of one related to my first birth. So 
I had pre-labor rupture of membranes the day after my due date, just a little leak, and I went in to see the hospital-based midwives that I was going to after letting them know what happened. Um, the midwife actually said that she wanted me to be in active labor 24 hours past my water breaking, and she was actually encouraging me to come in right away for induction. I am so glad that I heard her, but listened to myself and my intuition, and I opted to go home and just let labor start naturally. Um, I went on to give birth to my son later that evening with no issues, but I'm still so uncomfortable with the idea that had my labor not started as quickly as it did, I would have been pressured or coerced into induction. That 24-hour clock just felt so arbitrary, and the situation sent a lot of red flags up for me. Um, so my question would be, at what point is there a real indication for an induction after PROM or pre-labor rupture of membranes? Again, thank you both so much for all of the wisdom and empowerment. So I would open this discussion by saying that there is no reason to induce unless you have a medical indication. And while many OBs and some midwives may say that uh, preterm rupture of membranes is a medical indication, I think you and I would both agree that it is not. Um, should you develop a fever, that's a different story. But she also mentioned that she had a small leak. Well, and preterm also would be. Like if the baby would be premature, that would be an issue. Yes, I think but she didn't, didn't, she didn't say I think preterm. You did, I think. You just said preterm rupture of membranes. I did. I may have said preterm, but I meant premature. So okay. There's also such thing as preterm premature. This is just premature rupture of membranes at term. She said she has a small leak, which means that she may have just ruptured a four bag of waters. And that really does not provide a lot of um, opportunity for infection to ascend into the uterus. A frank rupture in combination with anything in the vagina, such as a cervical exam, can put you at increased risk of infection or increased risk of developing a fever. Um, her midwife wanted her to come in right away and said I, that she expects that she will be in labor by 24 hours. And that's because most women, 90% of women who frankly rupture their bag of water will go into labor by 24 hours. Labor will have begun by then. That's an important distinction from having the baby born by then. So women have to understand like to be, you're, you're, you're agreeing wholeheartedly with that, right? Because hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes women think, oh gosh, like I only, you know, I'm 22 hours in and nothing's happened. But I think it is worth talking about this because labor begins for only 10 or 15% of women with their membranes releasing and no other sign of labor. And historically, everyone gets excited that the baby is coming and you find yourself casually walking out to the car, let's say to go to the hospital or the birthing center, you put on your seatbelt and you're driving there with your partner, like, Oh wow, labor really isn't so bad. It's pretty like, it's, this is fine. And the thing is you're not in labor and the hospital will be happy to take you. And before you know it, you're in the room, you're in the bed, they're going to start telling you you're having some kind of failure to something or other. They're going to start pushing drugs. And right there, it's increasing those adverse outcomes, those unnecessary cesarean sections. So this is a really good question that's being asked. What It is arbitrary that this is 24 hours. Some doctors are so aggressive as to say, we want to see you here within 12 hours. If you're group B strep negative, you want to jump in? 
Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think 24 hours is arbitrary. I think it's based on the fact that 90% of women will go into labor by 24 hours. So the assumption is that if you don't, there's something abnormal. But there but there really isn't. And even ACOG right. is starting to soften their language around it. Their guidelines, as of a couple of years ago, were getting really soft around saying it's women have been observed up to a few days with no change in the outcomes. ACOG is saying that now. Right. And it also depends on, as I said earlier, it depends on if it's a frank rupture or a small leak. It's not the same thing to your body. Right, right, right. Um, But what I was saying earlier, um, if you're group B strep negative, if you're at full term, there really is no concern. And if you do have one of those really high intervention doctors who says, well, we need to see you in here, listen for rhetoric, listen for, you know, we get concerned. We don't want to, we don't want to see you what we don't want is for you to have your membranes releasing over 24 hours. That sounds really scary when you listen to it, but if you really break it down, that's just rhetoric. So you can say, what's the risk? I'm group B strep negative. Now, if you're group B strep positive, that is a different story. But if you're negative, what, what are they worried about? What infection are they talking about? It's, it's really infection. I mean, you don't have to have group B strep to develop a, a fever. But how, labor. Yeah. But I mean, bacteria doesn't travel up through the vagina. And even if that's the concern, you can ask for a prophylactic antibiotic. So I guess the point is call your provider, drink, first of all, drink water and keep drinking water. If your membranes release, call your provider. If you're GBS negative, remind them of that. And by time, read those ACOG guidelines because they certainly should follow those at a minimum. And they're, again, they're getting very softer around, they're getting a lot softer around that, allowing more time. And you should we, take your, you should take your temperature um, because just having a fever is, does put the baby at risk, but you shouldn't develop a fever if nothing goes in the vagina. So keep things out of the vagina. Keep, as Cynthia said, hydrating because your amniotic fluid for the baby will continue to replenish. Even if your water's broken, it's not that, it's not that your baby's going to have no amniotic fluid. It does continue to keep um, replenishing. And that fluid is a great resource for your baby that helps with fetal positioning along the way. So you want to think in terms of the baby having that resource. If you want to listen to a really inspiring story, Cynthia, you, I'm going to count on you to remember the episode. <laughs> oh, remember God. the birth story. Which of, one? Um, I'm not even going to remember. It was way back in the beginning. Um, the mother who, Christina, who had five days of Christina. Yeah. February of 2021. Christina, she five yeah, days. She birthed with my mentor, Nancy Weiner. Yeah. Five days of ruptured membranes. That might be, that might be my favorite birth story that we've had so far. I, it's hard to pick it's, a favorite, but that, that is definitely one of the few that I always recommend to all of my clients. I think that's a, yeah, I can't pick a favorite. Now the other ones I love are coming to mind, but that, that one is it's worth a listen. That one is a very, very worthwhile episode for sure. I loved her perspective and her everything about it. All right. We got a ton of questions. We've got to move along here. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. I was wondering if you know or have heard of anyone ever successfully preventing hyperemesis gravidarum in pregnancy. I was diagnosed with both of my pregnancies and my husband and I both want more kids, but I am literally terrified of being pregnant again. Thanks. Hyperemesis gravidarum is extreme nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Oh, I had a friend with that. Yeah. It's I can tell you all what helped her. Go ahead. Yeah. You go. Well, it can be debilitating. So nausea yes. and vomiting of pregnancy is a thing for most people, but it's of course a scale. And if it becomes 
um, if it becomes so severe that you can't keep down food and water and it's impacting your ability to gain weight and sufficiently eat in pregnancy, then it becomes HG. Um, and it can be very serious because if you aren't able to keep down food and water, you're obviously not going to be able to give enough hydration to your body. You can get dehydrated. You can get completely depleted nutritionally. It can impact your baby's growth. So we do have to pay attention to it and, um, and remedy it. It is very much a spectrum. Um, should it be severe enough that you do become dehydrated, you, you, you do need to go for IV therapy. I think it's also really helpful to identify triggers, knowing the foods that do make you feel nauseous. So do I know of how to completely prevent it the next time around? No, I, I don't. I mean, some women will have a subsequent pregnancy and not have it most if they had it in their first pregnancy, I would say probably more than half, maybe even 75% experience it a second time. But you can do some things to try to reduce it. So that would be things like really learning to identify the foods that are triggers for you, even expanding the foods that you eat, like when you're not pregnant, widening your variety of interests in foods so that new foods in pregnancy might be easier for you. Certain smells in the house can be triggers. So if you have fragrances that you knew bothered you the last time, make sure those things are completely out of the house, whether that's like laundry detergent, soaps, candles, uh, getting in really good physical shape can help. So it is more common in women who are slightly, even just slightly to moderately overweight. That is a risk factor. So being in good physical shape can make a difference, whatever that means for, you know, for you, we all know when we're sort of like in our best shape versus not, um, it's not about a specific BMI or anything like that. You haven't named the thing that helped my friend Suzanne. Okay. Um, so. Oh, you're about to say it. Acupressure. Ah, you're about to say it. (laughs) Wristbands, the C-bands. Is that what she used? No. Okay. Well, acupuncture, acupuncture and acupressure, acupuncture Acupuncture and acupressure are both helpful for reducing nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Okay. My friend, Suzanne, first of all, all three pregnancies, severe, severe. It's like she... She's from Minneapolis. Her mother-in-law from Texas had to fly and stay with her because she couldn't take care of her children. And my friend is extremely fit. She was an athlete in, in most, you know, most of her life. She, uh, she's one of the most joyful and maybe the most joyful person that I know. She's like always in this incredibly delightful mood. And it was, it was incredible to see her go through this because I would call her and she was lying in bed all the time. Mm -hmm. She couldn't function happened all three pregnancies. I'm so sorry to say that because the woman writing in is afraid to get pregnant again, but Suzanne's, I think it was her mother in her third pregnancy who said, I made you an acupuncture appointment. And it was like month six or seven. She went and it immediately vanished. It all went away. It all got better with acupuncture. I'm not the least bit surprised because I feel like I could tell a dozen stories of acupuncture turning things around for people. So please take heart. If you want to have another baby, um, don't be too discouraged because hopefully all these things will work, but definitely keep acupuncture as a part of your life. Maybe even pre conception. I would, I would say a 100% preconception, um, really trying to get your body in the best nutritional state 
is really important as well. Like eating well, very nutrient dense food, taking a good prenatal vitamin, stop getting all your vitamin and mineral stores um, in a good place so that if you are not able to keep food down as much, your, your body's not going to get depleted as quickly. Also filtering water is important because there could be certain things in the water that are aggravating and making you feel nauseous. And then just basic stuff that we recommend for nausea, nausea and vomiting of pregnancy in general, like eating small, more frequent meals, not drinking on an empty stomach when you wake up in the morning. Oh, if it's really severe, like it is for this woman joining a HG support group. And those exist because this is really hard for women and it's making it so she doesn't want to get pregnant. Um, so having that extra support makes a huge difference. Okay. So for this next one, we received two questions asking different variations of the same question related to a recommendation from a provider to take baby aspirin in pregnancy. So first let's hear both of those questions that were submitted and then we'll respond. Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. I am calling you from Seattle. Uh, love your show. My mom actually uh, told me about it and I started listening, um, learned so much. And so I just want to thank you for that. My question is about baby aspirin in pregnancy. Um, I was told by the CNM at the hospital-based practice that um, I was going to that um, I should start taking low-dose aspirin starting after 12 weeks. I think it was 12 or 13 weeks. They recommended that I start daily on a low-dose aspirin um, to help reduce the risk of preeclampsia. And not against it, but I'm really curious what your take is. Um, the reasons that they gave me were uh, the risk factors were first pregnancy in over 35 at the time of delivery. And um, I'll be 36, exactly. I'm 35 now and I'll be 36 at delivery. So I'm curious um, what your take is on this. I would love more information. Um, that just wasn't quite enough for me. So anyway, thank you so much. Love your show and appreciate um, all that you ladies do. Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. My name is Kate. I'm calling from Massachusetts. I'm calling with um, a question about baby aspirin and preeclampsia. I saw a nurse practitioner today here in the Boston area for an appointment. I am in my early 40s, and I was asking her about being a first-time pregnant, possibly being a first-time pregnant mom in my early 40s, and she mentioned that the practice where I had the appointment has a policy about starting all pregnant patients over the age of 40 on baby aspirin at 12 weeks to prevent preeclampsia. So my questions are around this. Does this have to be standard practice over the age of 40? Does it help to do this? And alternatively, could it be determined through testing and other evaluations that this regime might only make sense for some pregnant people and not for everyone? She did not answer my questions when I inquired further, so maybe you can both shed some light on this because I would just love to know more, and maybe there are others out there who would be interested to know, too. Wonderful to have this opportunity to reach out. Have a lovely day, and thank you for all that you do. I'm following you both on Instagram, enjoying all of the content, and listening to your invaluable, insightful podcast, too. Keep up the amazing work. It is so greatly appreciated. Take care. Aspirin in pregnancy, this is an area I really care about for no particular reason other than 
I've noticed in working with couples since 2007 that about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago, I started hearing women I'm working with sharing with me that their providers are telling them to take an aspirin a day. Now, does it really make sense to take an aspirin every day in the name of health? It never felt right to me. So let's look at the research on this. This is a recent trend that medical caregivers are recommending low-dose aspirin in pregnancy. According to ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, this is a quote, low-dose aspirin prophylaxis should be considered for women with more than one of several moderate risk factors for preeclampsia. This is very important. More than one, moderate, not low risk, moderate risk factors for preeclampsia. ACOG goes on to say that a relative risk reduction is probably just two to 5%. Two to 5%. They're having women go on daily aspirin when it really provides a possible relative risk reduction of just two to 5%. Aspirin is not recommended for women with unexplained loss or as a routine preeclampsia preventative. There we go. That exactly addresses the question we received today. But again, I want to say women with unexplained loss. So about half of losses are unexplained. This would not make sense for them or routinely to prevent preeclampsia, regardless of your age. However, that's exactly the trend we're seeing. We're seeing that it's being recommended routinely to prevent preeclampsia or simply because of age. We are even seeing low risk first time women over 35 of being advised to take a daily aspirin in pregnancy. So if they say like, you're an older mom that puts you at higher risk of preeclampsia or stillbirth, don't take any chances. Just take a low dose aspirin every day. That's classic rhetoric and ACOG expressly disagrees with it. According to ACOG also, and this is a quote in the absence of high risk factors for preeclampsia, the current evidence does not support the use of pro prophylactic low-dose aspirin for the prevention of early pregnancy loss, fetal growth restriction, stillbirth, or preterm birth. ACOG says low-dose aspirin is considered safe, and it is associated with a low likelihood of serious maternal or fetal complications. So that's interesting because it's a qualitative comment bordering on rhetoric. Low risk of serious maternal complications indicates that they're are some potential serious complications. That's how we have to read between the lines with these things. According to the Mayo Clinic, higher doses of aspirin pose various risks, various risks in pregnancy during the first trimester, potential pregnancy loss and congenital defects. Again, this is with a high risk. I mean, this is with a high dose in the and first during, trimester. In the first trimester. And during the third trimester, increased risk of premature closure of a vessel in the fetus's heart, and also increased risk of bleeding in the brain of premature infants. It's important to note the Mayo Clinic only named risks associated with high doses, as we just said, but if high doses can cause severely adverse health effects, should we really be routinely giving low doses to so many women with a relative risk reduction of just two to 5%, Tricia? That's a pretty small number. I think the point, the take home is that it's being routinely offered for women that ACOG clearly states it's not recommended for. 
And it's certainly not recommended because you're over age 40, which is also what we hear with no risk factors for any other reason other than being 40. Yeah. You have to have several moderate risk factors, several, they don't even say one. Right. That's so pretty- that was a very thorough review of that, um, of that topic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I got all excited that a few times. about that. It was oh brief. yeah. Sorry that it was such a rant on that, but no, it's good. Um, when you do the research, you've got to keep reading. Like if they say, well, then who, you know, you want to say like, well, where are their gaps and miss? Who is it good for? So, so there you for go. 95% of you, it is not going to be good for you. <laughs> At least. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, Tricia. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, my name is Sabrina. Um, I'm from New Brunswick, Canada. And I was actually calling regarding a question. Um, so I recently went to see uh, my OB and she asked them if we could do a water birth. Um, they explained that they do have a tub, but they choose not to use it. And then she also said that it might be broken, but they're also just using it as a storage room. Um, but they choose not to practice water births because there is a increase in infection and as well as uh, more difficulties with regulating the baby's temperature. I don't believe that to be true. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for almost my entire pregnancy, and uh, I really wanted to say thank you for all the information you put out there. Um, because of everything I've learned from your podcast, I've actually chosen to switch practitioners last week and I'm currently 36 weeks pregnant um, so I'm getting some better care now in my opinion but um, hope to hear what you guys have to say on that and have a great day. Trisha I have a surprise for you. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> I mean I just it's so nice when we get such a straightforward easy question like this where there's no oh well if this scenario you might need to do this it's like this is just no and no wrong and wrong. Wrong. Yeah, Everything about this is wrong. And well, I just love like, well, that we have one tub, but it's broken. And we use it for storage. We use it for storage. It's filled with crap right now. I mean, what kind of place is that? Um, it's like, well, we made that effort, but you know, no one used it. I bet well, they would say it's that. Like, I bet they'd say know, no one they used like, it. They like to say that we have, we have a tub. We have it. It's, you know, it's on their website. We have, right. we, we offer water birth or labor in the tub or whatever, but so Trisha, I have a surprise for you. I reached out to Barbara Harper, who we both love, of course, and she's been on the podcast twice. She is the world expert, hands down, in water birthing. She's the founder of Water Birth International, which she founded in the 80s. And I shared this audio recording with her and she called back and gave us an audio recording in response. So we have, oh, amazing. We have her <laughs> response right here. Hi, this is Barbara Harper reporting in from Denver, Colorado, and I'm here to answer Sabrina's questions about infection and keeping baby warm. Sabrina, I would, um, if you could, not go to that hospital, and if you must, then bring your own tub in. The research is overwhelming for understanding that there are no increases in infection for either mother or baby. Even the Cochrane um, database in the UK says no adverse outcomes for either mother or baby. As early as 1960, there was a study published in the OBGYN journal in the US that said bathwater does not enter the vagina. 
So as far as keeping the baby warm, the in a water birth, every baby goes to mother's chest. I call it the sanctuary. And your chest has thermoreceptors that measure the baby's temperature every four seconds, sends that information to your brain, and your chest warms up. Now, when I attend a water birth, we put the baby in the sanctuary of the mother's chest, and then I'll put, um, after a few minutes, I'll put a warm towel behind baby. I've never had a baby that was difficult to regulate their temperature, and we keep mothers and babies skin to skin. Good luck with your birth, and if you need more information, uh, send a message to barbara at waterbirth.org and visit waterbirth.org, um, as well as waterbirth.int and the Barbara Harper. Take care. God bless. That was very nice of her. And now everyone can get a sample of what a wealth of knowledge she is. Every four seconds, thermoreceptors in your chest are assessing your baby's temperature and sending that information to your brain. I mean, it's just mind blowing. I know that with, when women have twins, if one has a fever, that one breast will cool accordingly. So I guess that's how it all happens behind the scenes, but, um, please do look up our episodes with Barbara episode 100, the benefit, the benefits of water birthing and 122 provider green lights. That was a pretty remarkable conversation with her in her work, traveling the world, educating doctors and nurses in how to support water birthing. And please don't have your baby at any hospital, if at all possible, that uses their tub as a storage room. Right. That's a hard, red. that's like a firm red flag. That's a big old flag. That's like a negative point. If you get points for having a tub, that's a negative point. You have a tub and you use it for storage. That's just definitely worse than not having a tub. Yes, it is. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. 
That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Hi, ladies. My name is Katie, and I'm from the Louisville, Kentucky area. Um, I've been listening to your podcast now for roughly 12 weeks. Um, I'm 35 years old and have waited eight years to become pregnant and finally have had a successful IVF procedure. So now I'm currently 23 weeks pregnant. Um, I do have a question. I am fully hoping to breastfeed. That's my plan. We all know how plans go. Um, but ever since basically the start of my pregnancy, I have had some incredible nipple pain. Um, so much so that even just grazing like an article of clothing, a t-shirt, um, after the shower, you know, toweling down, it just hurts so bad. So I have become very anxious now about um, the possibility of breastfeeding. So I was just curious if this ever goes away, if there's anything I can do to alleviate the pain. Um, yet again, thank you guys so much. I love, love, love the podcast. Found on Instagram and I'm totally addicted. Thanks again, guys. How nice. <laughs> that was very nice. I, I would try to help her feel a little more relaxed about um, postpartum, that her nipples may not feel the same way after the baby is born as they do right now in pregnancy. Sometimes people do get really, really sensitive nipples in pregnancy. Um, it's just one of the changes that happens with pregnancy, and it does not mean that that's going to be intensified during breastfeeding. Um, if the baby is latching well, there really shouldn't be any nipple pain associated with breastfeeding. Um, if her nipples are bothering her right now in pregnancy, she can even start to use some of the things that we recommend during breastfeeding, like soothies or even silverettes, something to keep the nipple um, from rubbing on her bra or on fabrics or on a towel. If it's related to spasm, sometimes if the nipples get cold or wind or something, you know, the nipples get exposed to something, they contract as they're meant to. And that can create a lot of pain for women if they're especially sensitive um, or if they have vasospasm of the nipple. So putting some pressure on it can help. But the overall thing would be just that she's, this does not mean that her nipple pain is going to be more intense after the baby's born. 
Hi, Cynthia and Tricia. It's your biggest fangirl here with a question. Recently, a friend of mine was told that she should wait one year postpartum before trying to conceive again so that her uterus is safe. Um, Now, after listening to your podcast, I've become very skeptical when medical providers mention the word safe. Is there any truth to this, and can you speak to this? Love your podcast, and I wish I knew about it when I was pregnant. Thank you so much. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure why your uterus is unsafe after a vaginal birth. Right. I mean, I think it's good for your body to give it 12 months or so between pregnancies, just to give your body time to replenish its nutrient and mineral stores. It's good for your mental health to wait a little bit longer between babies. Um, and it's just good for your overall physicality, your physical body to have time to recover. We lose a lot of strength in our core in pregnancy. Um, you know, we can get depleted nutritionally. We can get depleted in lots of ways after having a baby. So I think 12 months is a good idea from all those perspectives, but it has nothing to do with your uterus being safe or not. Yeah. I resent that language a little bit. Who's to call someone else's body part unsafe? Like how how would any woman want to feel that there's an organ in her body that isn't safe? I don't, I don't think it's a good choice of words. Anyway, that just sounds like rhetoric. I know you know it, Sarah, but you can now tell her we agree with you on that point. Time for quickies. Hey, Cynthia and Trisha. Um, this is Kate. I was wondering if you guys have any tips or tricks um, to get comfortable while in the third trimester when you feel like you just can't. That'd be great. Thanks. Get in the bath. Get in the bath. Oh, that's your answer to everything. That's it always the, your answer to everything. It is the answer to all ailments. <laughs> all right. Epsom salt tub. All right. Epsom salt tub. Next quickie. Hi, my name's Kristen, and I'm calling from North Carolina. I started listening to your podcast when I found out I was pregnant, and I heard on the episode the other day you talking about BRAIN, the acronym, and I can't remember what it stands for. Could you refresh us? Thanks. Well, this is yeah, such a good one. All right, BRAIN. Let's see if I can remember. What are the benefits? What are the risks? What are my alternatives? What does my intuition tell me? And what happens if I do nothing? So the BRAIN acronym is something that you can use anytime you are faced with a difficult decision or you have a question for your provider that you do not feel is being answered properly then or thoroughly enough, go through the BRAIN acronym in your head and ask your provider those, all of those things, benefits, risks, alternatives, intuition, doing nothing. I love the last two in particular. I mean, they're all great, but intuition is the one that no one really thinks about and doing nothing is a really important alternative that usually gets overlooked. What if we do nothing or what if we wait? Exactly. Next. Hi, Trisha and Cynthia. I'm so grateful for your show. I am wondering if you would touch on which supplements and brands you recommend for pregnancy, breastfeeding, and postpartum. There is just so much information out there about, like, take this versus that, and it's kind of overwhelming. Um, I eat a pretty healthy whole foods diet, and I'm wondering what I really need and what I should prioritize. Thank you. That is not a quickie. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a quickie, but let's give some quick info. A quick response I can give is 
if you have insurance and your doctor prescribes one, that is probably the one of the worst things on the market because it's all prenatal. You're talking, yeah, prenatals, yeah, yeah, yeah the prescriptive prenatal. Yes, yeah, yeah, those are the worst. Comes down, yeah, they're the worst quality. They're the most expensive ones. So of course, your doctors are inclined to to partner up with their buddies in pharma, which they are buddies. I did an Instagram thing this week about how they share a, a lobby with them, but those are the worst things for you. Um, so whatever you do, you can go to like a whole foods, but look for something that's food-based. That's the first thing. No corn, no soy, no gluten, no animal, like just pure, pure. But my mentor would say, put much more of your energy into what's on your plate, what you're actually putting in your body. And she likes to think of prenatals as optional because she wants women to feel so good about how they're eating that they don't have to supplement. But of course, supplementing is perfectly fine and good when you have a good quality. Do you want to add any quick comments on that topic? Yeah, really quick. I would just say that I would buy my prenatal vitamins from a good, reputable supplement company. So not just something that you find at CVS or Target, but like something from a vital nutrients or thorn is a good company or pure encapsulations is a good company and get your, you might as well just get your prenatal with methylated folate because you never know. Um, if you're somebody who needs that more, um, more than others, and it usually is a better quality prenatal vitamin in general. And for postpartum, postpartum soothe, of course, postpartum soothe. Yeah. She said postpartum, what to take for postpartum. Yeah. But that's topical. That's didn't she just ask about herbs? Oh, I think maybe. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Postpartum soothe. All right. Last one. Hi, Trisha and Cynthia. This is Leanne from Washington state. And I am curious about why it seems to be the standard of care. Well, at least for the midwives in my area to do cord attraction. I mean, I understand the importance of that stage of labor, but it feels a little counterintuitive. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. What does the midwife say? It, well, I think it's it's standard of care because it's an old part of the active management of third stage of labor. And again, this would not really be a quickie, but it should not be um, standard. Cord traction does not need to be routine. It should not be standard, but it probably comes from that place where they just haven't dropped it yet. Or the active management of labor of the third stage of labor is the use of Pitocin and cord traction to deliver the placenta. And describe cord traction. Cord traction just means putting extra pressure on the, 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 the pulling and tugging on the cord to help birth the placenta. Yep. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. It can increase the likelihood of pulling out the placenta prematurely and having retained placenta. And also just, again, overkill. Can we just leave everyone alone, please? Like this woman just gave birth. So we have to be tugging on the organ that's attached on the inside of her body because we're in such a hurry to get it out. I don't think so. So I, you know, I think this woman's intuition is right. And the, and her midwives really shouldn't be doing that. And she has the right to say not to do that to her. Right. I mean, no, no one should handle you without your consent. So if that's what they do, that's what they can do to somebody else if they allow it, but you don't have to allow it. There's no good reason for it. I mean, no, there has to be a good reason for it. What would be one good reason for it? I mean, if the mother is actively hemorrhaging, you know, you might use some contraction to get the placenta out. Okay. Yeah. All right, everyone, before we sign off, just remember to submit any question to our monthly Q and A's call us at 802 
438-3696. That's 802-GET-DOWN. And you can leave us a message there at any point, 24-7. That was fun. That was so great to hear everybody's voices. Put down to birth show in your contacts and we'll just be a phone call away. (laughs) I wonder if the people who subscribe now are like, it's too many questions. It's too much. I doubt it. All right. Well, I'm going to see you. You have a lactation consulting appointment right now. And then you're meeting me. Should I just meet you right at the restaurant? A fancy dinner. I don't know. I'm not looking fancy. You're, so I'm you're not past, fancy. You're going to do that again. Sorry. I got to walk out the door in 30 seconds. I don't get time to change. Oh, man. All right. I'll dress down. Dress down, babe. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. I shall never forget inserting a fetal scalp electrode as a practicing student midwife. Oh, no. It was a very unpleasant experience. For you or for her? For me and her and the baby. For me. (laughs) I heard that. I'm sure it was for her too. Yeah. But it also was for me. Because you didn't want to be doing it. Yeah, just felt bad. It felt cruel to just screw that into the baby's head. Is that the only time you ever did it? I mean, a few times. In, in your in, training. In midwifery school, I did it. But not in practice. Never in practice. No, not a home birth. We don't even have that.